You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in the first verse. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Amen? Praise the Lord. And that He appeared to Cephas, that is, Peter, then to the twelve, that is, the other apostles. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, Paul says. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? It was a common question and debate at the time. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins." then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all dies, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who puts all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word making these truths known to us. Thank you for the testimony of all the believers for the last 2,000 years who've gone ahead of us, 
who have faithfully proclaimed the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of Christ first. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are a risen, living Savior, that death could not hold you, that sin and death could not master you, that you bore our sins on the cross, suffering the wrath of God the Father against us. You hung there in our place. Well, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for entrusting yourself to the Father and to the Spirit that you allowed yourself to be crucified in our place and buried in a tomb, knowing for sure that you would be raised. And on the third day, Lord, we know that you were raised, that on that morning you walked out of your grave, you showed yourself to your disciples, you ascended to the Father's right hand, and now today you are King of kings, Lord of lords, reigning over your creation, saving all those who trust in you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We praise you. We know that you hear us. We worship you. We seek to glorify you. We seek to be changed by you this morning. Lord, in all the ways that we struggle to believe this testimony about your resurrection, we ask that you would help us in our unbelief. Grant it to us to grow in our faith and our passion for your name and for your glory this morning. We pray in Jesus, the living God's name. Amen. All right, so in this passage here, 1 Corinthians 15, of course, it's the Apostle Paul speaking. And uh, in this chapter, he's seeking to do something for his readers, for the church in Corinth, uh, that we don't spend a whole lot of time doing normally. What he's trying to show them here is that they can trust that the resurrection of Christ is not only a religious fact, that is, it's the tenet of a religion with Jesus at the center, so that you would say, uh, what's the fact of the resurrection of Christ? And you would say, oh, it's that some people called Christians believe it. It's not only this religious tenant of a certain faith, but it's actually a historical fact. That's what he's trying to show them here. He wants them to know that he is not the only one, and they are not the only ones who have staked their lives on this truth that Jesus is alive. He wants them to know that this is a historical fact. Now at this time, uh, when Paul's writing this letter, the resurrection had happened years and years before. But only years and years, not decades, not centuries, not millennia, like we are looking back to the resurrection. He's talking about something that had happened years before, and still the debate was raging on whether or not, even so, this is still first century the debate is raging on whether or not the dead are raised and whether or not Christ himself was raised. In some strange way, people were willing to be Christians, Christ followers, even if they thought Christ was dead. They thought, well, he was a prophet. 
He was a powerful teacher. He died in our place for our sins and made a payment for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God. But the thing that they were missing was that if he's dead, he can't apply his work to them. A dead Savior is no Savior. They didn't understand, some of them, that Jesus was a God, a Savior, a Lord that they could call upon in their own day and that he would hear them. So Paul here is seeking to show them the historical accuracy and reliability of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We're still doing the same thing. In our day, we're still fighting the same fight. The same debate is still raging on whether or not Jesus was a real person, whether or not he really died on a cross, if he did, whether or not he was raised from the dead. And even if all that's true, many people want to know, how could a God like that even care about a person like me? So much debate, so many questions, and honestly a lot of confusion about the resurrection, about why it matters, and about whether or not it's actually a true fact. Of course, Paul is saying here that it is a fact. You can see in verse 20, we read it, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. In fact, and in Paul's own mind, it was a historical fact that Jesus was dead and then was not dead. That's what resurrection is. So, since Paul was trying to fight a battle not only about the tenets of a religion with Jesus at the center, but he was trying to show that historically they could rely on this, let's do the same. Let's fight the same fight. Let's, let's kind of allow this discourse to take place here this morning. But I'm the one with the microphone strapped to his head, so I'll do the talking. Let's go with this. Here's a good starting point. The historical reliability of this letter. Why don't we start there? Because this is where all the claims are, right, that Paul is making to these people. This is what we're reading this morning. So what about this letter? Does it matter? Is it real? Is it legit? Is this history? Or is this just some fabricated religious text devised to manipulate people in order to herd people and consolidate power with some group? That's what a lot of religion is about, isn't it? So how about this? 1 Corinthians. Well, some historians doubt the authenticity of some of Paul's letters. When I say historians, and I'm saying it now and when I continue to say it, I'm talking about New Testament historians, people who've studied the historicity of the New Testament. Some of them are Christians, some of them are non-Christians. In fact, a lot of them are non-Christians, and they've devoted their academic life, and I think even their personal life, to trying to discredit the New Testament by finding out the historical inaccuracies and inconsistencies of the New Testament so that they can free themselves from the responsibility of the claims of the New Testament. Which, if it's not true, then we want to be free from its claims, right? We want the truth. So some historians doubt the authenticity of some of Paul's letters. There's no way you can get around that because they're all over the place. Get on YouTube for a second and a half and you'll find them. They're very passionate. Even though there is 
just loads and loads of very strong, reliable, historical evidence to believe in the authenticity of the entire New Testament. And historically speaking, it has stood up to harsh scrutiny for all these centuries. Still, there are people who doubt its authenticity. But among the 13 letters that Paul wrote, 13, 13 letters that are attributed to Paul, there are six of them, and we're not going to get into all of that this morning, but there are six of them which are almost universally accepted by Christian and non-Christian historians as being undeniably, authentically written by the actual person called the Apostle Paul. Six of them. The history is just too tight, too reliable, too much verifying evidence, too many corroborating stories to be able to doubt some of Paul's letters that they were actually written by him. One of those letters is Galatians, the letter to the Galatians. And in Galatians, Paul says that he went to Jerusalem to meet with the 12 apostles who were with Jesus during his ministry. Of course, Judas had died and he was replaced. To meet with those 12 in order to make sure that the gospel he was preaching was the same gospel they were preaching. This is Galatians chapter 2. He made a journey there. He met with them privately. And he preached to them the same gospel he had been preaching to the Gentiles out in the world. And he was saying, is this the same message that you're preaching here in Jerusalem? Paul says in Galatians 2.9 that Peter, James, and John... Now, James wasn't one of the twelve apostles, but he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he was actually the brother or half-brother, shared a mother and a father, but not a heavenly father with Jesus. James was not a disciple of Jesus's during Jesus's life in the world. He was a skeptic. In fact, there was times where James and other members of the family would show up and just try to get Jesus to stop. You look like a crazy person. You have to stop this. You can't say that about yourself. But now, for some reason, James has become a follower of his brother who claimed to be God. What's that about? would take something really amazing. How many of you have brothers? What would it take for you to believe that your brother was God Almighty in all of his holiness and majesty? And it'd take a pretty alarming experience, right? Like maybe resurrection? James had become one of the leaders of the church, in fact, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. In Galatians 2.9, Paul says that Peter, James, and John gave him the right hand of fellowship. What he was saying was they affirmed him and the gospel message that he was preaching. In fact, even after Paul's death, disciples of Peter and John Known historical figures, including a guy named Polycarp. If any of you have done any kind of theological study, any history of the early church, you've probably heard of Polycarp, a disciple of Peter and John. He also affirmed Paul and his message, even referring to the letters of Paul as Scripture. 
So even after Paul's death, after all that Paul had written had been known and spread widely throughout the church, throughout the entire known world, people who knew the original apostles were saying, yeah, Paul was legit. He was a real apostle. What he said was true. His message is the gospel, and the facts of what he says, what he reports, were the facts. So according to Peter, James, John, and their disciples, Paul was accurately teaching things that they also believed about Jesus. Now, I'm saying that in order to just kind of set the stage for Paul's credibility and the claims that he made, and that those claims were verified, they were affirmed, by other apostles who walked and talked with Jesus, another undeniable historical figure who lived in Jerusalem in the first century and who was crucified by Rome. Another one of Paul's letters that is widely, almost universally accepted by Christian and non-Christian historians is 1 Corinthians. Even non-Christian historians say, yeah, he really did write that. A real person named the Apostle Paul, known around the world, really did write that letter. Now, I want to read again 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first 11 verses of that. Please follow along with me and let's remind ourselves of the claims that Paul is making here. As a real historical figure, a person known by the actual followers of Christ who knew him during his earthly life and ministry, who watched him crucified, who claimed themselves to see him resurrected, who verified Paul's teaching. Let's look at the claims that Paul makes here in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, that's, those are the brothers and sisters. When the New Testament says brothers, the Greek there can be interpreted brothers and sisters. He's speaking to everyone in the church. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, which is to say, unless you didn't actually believe. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So here Paul is speaking, not as somebody with whom the gospel originated, but someone who had the gospel preached to him. He received it, and then he passed it on to them. Now here's the gospel message. Remember, the gospel message which had been verified, affirmed by Peter, James, and John in Jerusalem that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That is, an actual death for the sins of all those who would believe in Him, in accordance with the Scriptures as prophesied about Him in the Old Testament. That He was buried. That His actually dead body was actually buried in an actual tomb. And we're speaking historically here, so we're going to use the word actual a lot. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Historical fact. This is just what was reported to me by those who were eyewitnesses. And that he appeared to Cephas. That's the name of Peter. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. 
More than 500 Christians all at once saw Jesus alive after his death and burial. He says even most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, which is an ancient kind of polite way of saying they were dead. Some of these 500 have died, but many of them are still alive, and you could go ask them today if you want to. They really did see him alive. Verse 7, then he appeared to James, that is, his brother James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, out of sync with all the other apostles, he appeared also to me. Remember, it was some time later that Paul was traveling, persecuting Christians, going from town to town, rounding them up, throwing them in prison, persecuting them, even killing them, separating families because he hated Jesus. He hated this gospel message. He didn't believe that Jesus had been raised, and he was seeking to purge Jerusalem from this teaching. But on the road to Damascus, Jesus appeared to him, spoke to him, set him apart, saved him. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. He's made me this way, he says. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, that is, this gospel message, this we preach to you, and so you believed. So these claims about the resurrected Jesus appearing to people. We have the resurrected Jesus appearing first to Peter, then to the twelve, then to more than 500 people all at the same time, most of whom at this time were still alive, though some had died. Then he appeared to James, the brother of Jesus. Then he appeared to all the apostles, that is not the twelve, but all those who were sent ones. Apostle means sent one. All those who had been commissioned by the church, sent out to preach the gospel to the world. And then appeared to Paul. That's a lot of people. More than 500, obviously. Now, there's a guy named uh, Mike Lacona, and you should write his name down. I'm even going to spell it for you. That's how much uh, I think you should look him up. Mike Lacona, L-I-C-O-N-A. And he's really helpful on this point of the historical reliability of the resurrection. And in his debates, he says, with uh, skeptical historians, non-Christians who don't believe in the resurrection, of Christ, he says that the most popular explanation for, the, for resurrection skeptics is that people were hallucinating in the days after Jesus' death. That they were hallucinating. Okay? Now, he has debated with uh, professors of history from Yale and all these great institutions and all these things, not just, you know, Joe Schmo on the street taking the best of the best and, and their most powerful arguments against the historical reliability of the resurrection. And he says that the most popular argument that they have to try to discount the resurrection is that 
the followers of Christ were hallucinating out of their grief and that this is how they saw Jesus alive after his death. So Mike says this, These people know that the crucifixion of Jesus is verified history and that no one survives Roman crucifixion. It's just not possible uh, to to survive that kind of torture uh, and and long, drawn-out torture. The Romans were perfectionists when it came to executing people. So they know Jesus is a real historical figure. They know that he did die of crucifixion in Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans. And they know that the apostles must have really believed that he was raised from the dead because they suffered tremendously and died in their devotion to the fact of the resurrection, which people don't do for lies, right? I mean, they, they might do it for a lie if they believe the lie, But if you don't believe the lie, if this is something that you don't actually believe, then you don't suffer persecution and torture and die for it. Watching your family die for for something that you know is not true, it's just not human nature. So they know Jesus was real, they know he was crucified, they know he was buried, and they know that his apostles truly believed that he was alive after his death. So the best theory that they can come up with to date is that all these people were hallucinating out of their grief. Now, it might sound kind of plausible on the surface, right? People definitely can hallucinate out of their grief. In fact, as Mike says, the most common form of hallucination is elderly people who've lost a loved one. 7% of elderly people who've lost a loved one hallucinate and see the one that they've lost. 7%, which to me sounds high. Doesn't that sound high to you? Out of their grief, they see things that aren't there. That's the most common form of hallucination, 7%. Now, mass hallucination is basically unheard of. For even two people to hallucinate and see the same thing at the same time, report it with the same detail, is unheard of. Which makes sense, right? Because a hallucination is something that's occurring inside your mind. It's not based in reality. And reality is something shared. We all, whether we like it or not, right, this is reality. Some of us don't like it and we rail against it, but it is what it is. Now, if a hallucination is shared between two people whose minds are disconnected from one another, how does that make sense? How are they seeing something that's a projection of their own mind? It's not possible. It doesn't work. It's illogical, and that's why it's unheard of. It's just not a thing that happens. So then, how is it that 100% of the apostles saw Jesus alive in the same places, doing and saying the same things? How is it that 500 people, many of whom were still alive when Paul wrote this, all saw them, 100% of them all saw Jesus alive doing and saying the same things. How is it that Paul, even, who wrote 1 Corinthians, 
but at the time of his supposed hallucination, was actually an enemy of Christ. He didn't want to see Jesus. He wasn't grieved over the loss of Christ on the cross. He was overjoyed that Christ had finally been crucified. Finally, we're rid of that religious zealot and his false teaching. Hallucination makes no sense. In fact, the most plausible, reliable, sensible explanation for why hundreds upon hundreds of people saw Jesus alive after his crucifixion, why they suffered persecution for their testimony, died for their testimony, the most plausible and sensible explanation is that they actually did see Jesus alive. That Jesus actually was raised from the dead on the third day after his crucifixion and that the fact of their vision of him was so alarming, was so powerful for them, which would be for any of us, right? It was so powerful for Paul that it knocked him off his horse, blinded him, and radically changed the course of his life so that he went from being the greatest enemy of Christ to the most famous apostle of the gospel of Christ. Suffering persecutions, his entire life in the world after was riddled with persecutions. No one suffered for Christ more than Paul did. What kind of experience would it take to have such a radical change of heart, to be imprisoned and tortured and slandered Dragged before courts, humiliated, whipped, beaten, left for dead. The book of Hebrews describes the persecutions of those early believers, even to the point of being cut in half. Cut in half for a lie? They knew it was true because it is true. And that's what it comes down to. The resurrection of Christ is a fact. He was God. He died willingly of his own accord in our place for our sins. He was buried in a tomb and three days later he walked out of the tomb, risen to life, raised up by the Father so that he defeated sin and death and is now reigning over his creation as Lord and as Savior of those who believe in Him. This is a fact. It's why we're celebrating this morning. Because it's true. Not, we're not here to celebrate because we hope it's true. Because it would be so nice if it was true. It would answer so many questions. It would heal so many wounds. It would bring me to a place where I could just be at peace. No, I mean, all those things are true. But we're celebrating because... It's a fact, because it is true. We don't gather here on Sundays to celebrate and worship God for things that we just hope are true of Him. We come to celebrate that we know these things are true of Him. Jesus is risen. He is alive. He is reigning. Now, I want to continue reading through this passage, and I want to take it to the same place where Paul took it, starting in verse 12. 
He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? That is that people who have died will be raised again. There were some people who weren't believing this. Some of them even believed Jesus was raised, but that nobody else was. And Paul's saying, look, if the dead are raised, then the dead are raised. How can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Now, this raises a concerning question on purpose. He's saying, look, we know there are many hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses to his resurrection. But if you're doubting the resurrection, then let's go down that road for just a minute. What if Christ was not raised? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even being found to misrepresent God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, listen to this, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So is the resurrection of Christ important to our faith? It's critical. It's foundational to our faith. In fact, if you were to remove the resurrection of Christ from the dead, then you have nothing to put faith in. Your faith is futile. You're still stuck in your sins. The one who died for your sins is still dead. You're going to die too. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ, that is those who have died trusting in Christ, they've perished. They've perished. Perished in the New Testament doesn't just mean dead. It means something much more grievous than dead. You remember in John 3.16, Jesus said that if anyone believes in Him, they will not perish, but have eternal life. Perish doesn't just mean die. Of course we're all going to die, but we don't all perish. Those who believe in Christ don't perish, because to perish means to die having never fulfilled the purpose for which you were created. You died in futility. You died pointlessly. You died tragically. We'll all die, but we won't all perish. But if Christ is not raised, then even those who have all fallen asleep trusting in Him have perished. He takes this so far, this what if Christ wasn't raised thought, this hypothesis of theirs so far that in verse 19 he says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, that is, no hope beyond this life because he's dead, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, if we say that in our generation, I think we're saying it going a little bit far. How many of us have suffered the way Paul and the other first century believers have suffered? How many of us have seen our children dragged away and murdered? How many of us have seen our, our spouses dragged away and murdered, fed to wild animals for entertainment? How many of us have laid our own selves on crosses for the sake of testifying to the truth of the resurrection of Christ? 
How many of us have lost everything? None of us. But he says, if we, if we have trusted in a dead Christ, then we are of all people on this planet most to be pitied. We are the saddest sack of losers in the world if Christ is dead. We've suffered for nothing. All of this determination, all of this preaching, all of this passion, everything we've staked our lives on has been meaningless if Christ is dead. And you know what? He's right. And we may not feel that burn as deeply as they felt it because we haven't suffered as much. We haven't faced the same kind of persecution and loss for the sake of Christ that they have. But do you know it's true of us too? If we've claimed that we serve a risen Christ, but in fact that Christ is dead, His bones are dust in some tomb in Jerusalem then we are a pitiful bunch. A nice bunch, for the most part. Friendly. Supportive of one another. Maybe it was good for us in this life because we had some encouragement, something to cling to. But what a pitiful thing to cling to if it was only hope for this life. But in verse 20, his tone changes. His tone changes. He stops fooling around with this little hypothetical uh, scenario of theirs where Christ is actually dead. And he gets back to the facts, back to his first 11 verses, the historical truth of the resurrection of Christ. He says in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And now he gets into some just really rich theology. He had already said, what if Christ wasn't dead? Here's what life is really like. Now he says, since in fact Christ is alive, here's the theology. Here's what's really going on in the world. Christ is the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. The first fruits, the first offering from the harvest. All these people have died and Christ is the first one to be raised bodily raised, not your spirit going to be with God after you've died, but your body being raised from the dead, glorified, you are no longer dead, you are as alive as alive can be. Christ first. He says, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. That man is Adam. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die because Adam sinned and brought sin into the world and we've all been infected with that sin and we all died in that sin. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. We've all died in Adam, but in the resurrection of Christ we'll all be raised. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming... When Christ returns again victoriously to finally finish the battle against sin and death, when He descends from the clouds to make war on His enemies, to make judgments, to bring along with Him those who've trusted in Him, 
First, those who have died in Christ will be raised. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, which he cannot do if he's dead. Amen? The last enemy to be destroyed is death. We know that when Christ returns, death will die. There will be no more death, no more sadness, no more sorrow, no more tears. We'll live in perfect peace and unity and holiness and worship with the living God. So then, if Christ is not raised, then our faith is futile. But since, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, our faith is the opposite of futile. That's the point he's making here. Your faith in a risen Christ is the opposite of futile. Futility is pointlessness. It's pointlessness. But our faith in a risen Christ is the entire point of human existence. Because Christ is raised, your faith is not futile. Your faith is the whole point. It's the highest level of human existence to trust in the risen Christ. All things exist for the glory of Christ, and only through our faith in Christ can we live to glorify Him. Only through our faith in Him can we have life and peace with Him. Faith in a dead man is truly pointless. But faith in a risen Christ has the power to deliver us from every enemy, every sickness, every sorrow, every sin. He is Savior. He is living. He will return again. And at His return, a complete healing called the resurrection of the dead will happen. And then after Christ's resurrection, at that moment, we all, all of us who have died and all who are still living, will be raised with Him. And our bodies will become like His resurrected body, glorified by God, immortal, undying, no weakness, no failure, no temptation, no limitation we will finally be all that God made us to be. And it all hinges on the fact of the resurrection of Christ, which is a fact. So, here's where we come to. Gathered here together on Easter Day, in memory of the resurrection of Christ, coming to learn, coming to grow, coming to reignite maybe our passion, maybe coming to test waters. There could be a lot of reasons why you're here this morning. Is this really true? How do I really feel about this? I'm glad you're here if that's why you're here. But whatever brought you here, we're talking about the hinge of all history. There is no more important thing that has ever happened than Jesus raising from the dead. And what you decide to do about it 
is the most important decision you'll ever make in your life. Now, I'm speaking to Christians and non-Christians. Whoever's gathered here, I'm saying that this morning, your response to the fact of the resurrection of Christ is the most important decision, the most important response you will ever make, you will ever have in your entire life. What are we going to do about this fact? Jesus is raised. What are we going to do about it? He even goes on at the end of his uh, exhortation here to say, Some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. You are people who've heard of the resurrection of Christ, but still there are those who have not heard in your midst. I say this to your shame. How is it that you could believe in the resurrection of Christ and not be overcome to the point of full, complete, radical devotion to this risen God? He's not dead. Do you know that means all of life is about Him? If He is not dead, then everything is for Him. Everything is to Him. Everything is about Him. You can't say that about anybody else in all of history. He was crucified for our sins, and He was raised for our life. Faith and hope in Him carry a high level of demand. If you're just going to be logical about it, just, just be a person in a room with me, another person, and let's think about this. If Jesus is raised from the dead, and in fact He is, then to live as if He's not is nonsensical. To go about your day as if your day is not about the glory of the risen Christ makes no sense. To live your life in radical, complete devotion that looks crazy to the world, that will get you ostracized, that will get you pushed out of conversations, that will get you fired from jobs, that will even get you pushed out of some churches. This kind of devotion to the risen Christ is the only response that makes any sense. All of life is about Him. All of our life is for Him. So, the decision is something like this. If I can try to put it to you the way I feel it, just in a, in a really impending pressing way coming down on me if I can share that with you and maybe you'll experience what it feels like that every single day if every moment is not devoted to the glory of Christ then it is lived in futility and if you're a person who is happy to live in futility then I for one thing fear for you for another thing have really no admiration for you. <laughs> I mean, let's be, let's be honest. If we're just like, I know that the way I'm living my life doesn't matter at all, but eh, what kind of person is that? But, but you're not responsible to me to, to gain my admiration or anything like that, or even to the person sitting next to you. You're responsible to God. To live in light of the truth, to live a life that matters, not in just the scope of your 100 years on this planet if you're lucky, but in the scope of all eternity, living a life that actually matters.
And we have to make a decision. Do I even care about that? Do I care about living a life that matters? Do I care about my moments mattering? The echo of my life mattering? Having any value, any worth? If you don't care, then then listen, at this point, I would invite you to keep on coming back. Keep on coming back. Keep coming to the Bible. Keep coming to churches where they're preaching the Bible. Keep coming to Christians with your questions. And do not listen to that voice of futility that tells you, maybe Christ is dead. Uh, Maybe Christ is alive. I don't see what it has to do with me. Listen, you're a lunatic. Don't listen to that voice. You have to listen to that pressing, gnawing, disturbing thing inside of you that tells you, I have to do something about this. I have to figure out if it's true or not true. It seems to be true. Let me run with that. Let me seek God in that. And if it's true, then I know it was worth it. And in fact, it is true. And it will be worth it. Now, if you're a Christian in the room, and and most of you are, I know just by looking through the room, then I want to say this. Let this remembrance of the truth of the resurrection of Christ and what it means about life, what it means in your life, please let your guard down. Let your guard down those walls of hostility that you have built against the reign of Christ in your life, the ways that you are afraid to step into devotion, the ways that you are afraid to trust in Christ. Let those things come crumbling down and invite the Holy Spirit to come and ignite a new kind of passion that is realistic, that is sensible, that's reasonable, that's logical in light of such an alarming, radical truth. Christ is raised from the dead. What are we going to do about it? Let's not live our lives to our shame that we would know Jesus is raised but not have a sensible response to that. Let's live like He is alive. That's the call. It's the call every Sunday. It's the call every day. It's obviously the call every Easter. Let's live like this is true. Because it is. Whether we like it or not, believe it or not, live like it or not, it is true that Christ is risen. I want to live like it's true. A a real, proper response to the reality of the resurrection of my God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's how I want to live. If, if the Spirit's in you, then I know He's telling you that's how you want to live. Listen to Him. Follow Him. You'll never disappoint. You'll never be sorry that you lived a moment to the glory of the risen Christ. Never. Never. Even if they torture you for it. Even if they rip your family away from you and throw you in prison and mock and belittle you. Even if they fire you from your job. Even if they kill you. You will never regret living a moment to the glory of the risen Christ. 
He will make sure of it. Please pray with me now. Let's seek God for faith, for trust in the truth. God help us. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.